The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Big tech is never very far from our minds these days because of the profound impact that it's having on our politics and on our society. But the emergence of a globalised economy dominated by a handful of immensely powerful companies is also changing the creative industries and it's having a deeply negative effect on the people who tell stories, make music and produce many other sorts of original work. It's not just about technology, though. The amalgamation and consolidation of media, publishing and entertainment companies worldwide means that power is now concentrated in a very small number of hands. And when that happens, it's not surprising that power gets abused. That is the subject of choke point capitalism, how big tech and big content captured creative labour markets and how we'll win them back. A new book co-authored by writer and activist Cory Doctorow and Rebecca Giblin, an academic specialising in creative rights and technology regulation. The book is about what has happened to culture and creative industries in the modern era, but also more broadly, perhaps, about what they see as the malign consequences of this concentration of so much power into the hands of a few enormous companies. Corey and Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be on. Hi, lovely to be here, Hugh. Corey, I'll ask you first the, the most basic question, choke point capitalism. It's an arresting phrase, but what does it actually mean? Well, it's this idea that through combinations of law and technology, large firms can corner audiences and put them into a sort of corral. And because creators need to reach those audiences, and because the audiences are gated by these large firms, the large firms have a little choke point and they can take whatever it is that you have of worth, say the copyrights that you've been given by a parliament or a congress or, or any other negotiating leverage you might be able to hold over them, and they can just take it for themselves as you pass through the choke point. It, it's not so much a story about intermediaries. There, there's always been intermediaries in the arts. It's about concentrated intermediaries. It's about this circumstance that we're in now where there's you know three giant record labels that own three giant music publishers, and there's four giant movie studios, and there's uh, four giant publishers. It's technically five, but it's about to be four because one is swallowing the other. In the United States, we have one giant movie theater chain, and uh, around the world, there's one giant ebook retailer and one giant audiobook retailer, and so on. And these are the choke points that creators have to pass through in order to bring their work to market. 
And this, um, these choke points have really become a problem because in the last 40 years we've seen this, this shift. You know, uh, say what you like about capitalism, but competition is supposed to be fundamental to it. But there was this shift where this idea took root that maybe monopolies are good, they're efficient, they lower can, consumer prices. And so, uh, we, you know, that's why we have people starting to say the quiet, the quiet part out loud. Warren Buffett salivating over companies that have got wide sustainable moats, by which he means things that stop people from, from coming into those markets and, can, and competing. Um, Peter Thiel says out loud, you know, competition is for losers. That's the orthodoxy taught in business schools now that you you should try and um, gate everything off so that you can maximize your share. But what that means is that in the creative industries and a growing number of other industries as well, the people who make the things and provide the services are getting less and less. Some political theor- theorists would say, Corey, that capitalism always tends towards monopoly unless there are regulations in place to to guard against it. And 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 reading the book, one of the things that occurred to me is that you know there's nothing necessarily new about choke points, particularly in the culture industries. There used to be just a handful of broadcasters in each country who controlled access to uh, television and and radio, for example. Or indeed, back in the 1940s, the vertical integration of the Hollywood studio system and total control over all aspects of production and distribution. Of course, that was broken up, wasn't it, by, um, you know, by, by, by legal moves. And that hasn't happened at all this time around. Why would that be? Yeah, well, that's that's what Rebecca was just talking about, that there was this sea change about 40 years ago and how we viewed monopolies um, un- under Thatcher, Reagan, Mulroney in Canada and so on. We had a political revolution that embraced embraced a new orthodoxy from the University of Chicago School of Economics, led by this guy called Robert Bork, who was Richard Nixon's solicitor general and um, a crank. And and Bork really held that uh, monopolies were presumptively efficient and that uh, the harms that arose from allowing a, a potentially bad monopoly f- to uh, grow were, were much uh, less than the harms that we would all suffer if we stopped a good monopoly in its tracks that, you know, lurking out there were these Uber mentioned, you know, these, these uh, Jeff Bezos's who were just waiting to have their special genius unleashed. And if we stood in the way of their ambitious plans, uh, which, which they would realize by accessing the capital markets and buying all of their competitors, doing uh, predatory pricing to stop new market entrants, merging with their largest competitors and so on. If we, if we stood in the way of that, then we wouldn't get, you know, overnight delivery and the miracle of jars full of urine in the delivery vans, and we would be, we would be uh, all, all the all of us poorer for it. And um, you know, here we are. And you know, one of the things where it pains to talk about in the book is that although creative workers are particularly exploitable because um, we tend to work for ir- irrational reasons, you know, there's the story about the kid who runs away and joins the circuit circus rather and his father finds him shoveling elephant poop and says son come home and the kid says what and quit show business um but we're not the only ones who are in that circumstance there are plenty of people who work uh under exploitative conditions not because they're in love with the job but because they have no choice uh people at the bottom of the labor market and also other people who work out of a sense of mission and who are punished for it in, you know, health workers, teachers, and so on. There's a, a great section in, in David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs, where he talks about the fact that people who have meaningful work tend to uh, get uh, this stick from other people when they ask for good pay as, as though, you know, it, it, if you're a teacher and you get the intrinsic satisfaction of helping children, you shouldn't want to earn a living wage. 
it's it's only the people who have to you know uh, fill in a, a rectangle on an org chart for some princeling at a multinational who who deserve a decent wage because their work is so soul deadening. Whereas if you have even the smallest amount of pleasure in your work, then then uh, why should anyone give you a decent living wage? So Rebecca, if if that new definition of monopoly, which came in with the the, the Reagan administration and Robert Bork and people like that, um, says monopoly is okay as long as it doesn't increase prices for on, on the consumer end. Um, what is a monopsony then? That's a word that crops up a number of times in the book, which sort of turns the argument around, doesn't it? Well, it would have cropped up a lot more times in the book if our first readers hadn't said, oh, that's such an ugly word. Please, please take some of them out. But we we are determined to make monopsony sexy, though, and we should all care about monopsony. Uh, this is a concept people are less familiar with than monopoly because there's no board game for this one. Um, but so it's, instead of it being a seller that's got a lot of power, it's where a buyer has a lot of power. And it was named by a visionary economist called Joan Robinson in the 19, back in the 1930s, and she warned that this is incredibly dangerous for workers because when um, a company is, is a powerful buyer, um, you know, which is the case of Amazon um, in dealing with publishers and authors, it's the case of Hollywood's talent agencies in dealing with it, with screenwriters, the case of, you know, all of the, the, the big three record labels, which own the big three music publishers, and of course, uh, Spotify as well when it comes to dealing with recording artists and songwriters, so on and so forth. Monopsony uh, power allows the company to squeeze uh, those workers and producers, and they're able to do so in, in much more easily um, than in cases with monopoly because monopsony power accrues at much lower market concentrations. So one of the examples we talk about in the book is that Amazon, when it was starting out, well, it's always been very clear that um, that you know, one of the famous Bezosisms is your margin is my opportunity, right? So they've always been very clear that they were setting out to take other people's margins. But they um, they actually created something called the Gazelle Project, where um, they wanted to reduce their cost structure so that they could, you know, um, have lower prices, which would allow them to lock in um, lock in customers, which would allow them to lock in producers even further, and then allow them to eliminate competition. So this was their playbooks. But to do that, they needed to find some, some margin. And so as soon as they had just a little bit of dominance in the market, they created this Gazelle project where they went after the weakest publishers and shook them down for a greater greater and greater discounts. Now, they did this um, to a lot of publishers, and one of them, Melville House, said, this, this is not acceptable. Um, we, we just can't do this. It's not sustainable. And Amazon just instantly retaliated by removing the buy buttons for their books. And even though at that point, Amazon only controlled about 8% of the Melville House market, they still had to give in because there's no alternative customers for that 8% of books. And um, the margins in the industry mean that if you if you're not making those sales, then then you just can't keep afloat. And so they they had to give in even at that concentration. So that gives you some idea now that we've we've progressed so much further down this rabbit hole and the concentration in so many creative industries has got even worse about how vulnerable um, creative workers and companies are to to this kind of problem. Yeah, the book has a number of examples of these kinds of kind of issues with some of the most famous companies in the world. People will be aware of their names. Uh, to me, Corey, the most shocking, um, the most egregious, the most abusive, the most unethical ones are from from Amazon. Uh, and I speak as an Amazon customer. And the book has really caused me to think again or start thinking about whether I'm able to think again about my relationship with Amazon. 
Well, I, I think that th that second formulation, thinking about whether you can think again about Amazon is an important one because, you know, one of the problems with allowing monopolies to form is that they become very difficult to unwind. They become structurally important, you know, as, as they say, too big to fail and too big to jail. It's very hard to go around Amazon these days, although we do have some suggestions in the book. You know, the, the, there are a lot of books about uh, what's wrong with the world that are uh, sometimes called chapter 11 books, where there's 10 chapters about how bad things are in 11th chapter, where we're exhorted to go out and vote harder to fix it all. And we didn't want to write one of those. We, we wanted to write a book where fully half of it was uh, really detailed technical proposals for how to unwind monopsony power and how to make sure that creators have more money at the end of the month, more groceries in the fridge, uh, easier time putting braces on their kids' teeth and whatnot. And, um, and, and those are all structural solutions. None of them are individual. We had one editor say, you know, we, I would buy this book, but I fear that because at the end of the book, there's not much anything any individual can do to fix this, uh, that it's just going to bum out the reader. And we were like, oh, you are so close to getting it because, of course, your personal choice to not shop on Amazon is not going to make much of a difference to Amazon. I mean, I made that choice. Uh, I have um, never allowed my books to be sold on Audible uh, for reasons that we get into in this book. Audible ha has this mandatory policy where if you sell a book on Audible, you have to lock that book to Amazon's platform forever using a kind of encryption called digital rights management, which means that your readers, if they quit Audible, lose access to the book, which means that every time you sell a book, you give them a reason not to quit Audible, and Audible knows that, so that's a reason that they can abuse you, and it's no coincidence that we also talk about a wage theft scandal involving Audible that, that's run to hundreds of millions of dollars involving independent authors. And, but um, the, the technical proposals that we go through involve, you know, there's the uh, um, some some pretty um, simple and then some much more complicated uh, ways that uh, governments, both local and national, can intervene, and also how arts organizations can intervene, and how standards bodies and technologists can intervene. And, and for example, um, you know, there are games that Amazon plays with their royalties that uh, we could just prohibit. We, we could just say, um, there are certain accounting practices that you're not allowed to engage in. We could say uh, that, uh, as they do in the European Union, that there must be a full accounting to creators of how their work is being exploited and how much money it's making. So the creators would actually have the basis on which to take the fight to the next step. Right now, it's, it's often very hard to identify exactly where you're being ripped off or, or who's doing the ripping off as between, you know, the three or four intermediaries between you and, and your uh, audience. O often we're, we're told, well, it's not the tech company, it's the entertainment company. You know uh, how badly those guys treat artists. And then someone will say, oh, no, it's not the arts company. It's the tech company. You know what ripoff artists those guys are. But when you have actual transparency, when you can see the, the monetary flows that, uh, through the system, then you actually can figure out who's got their hand in your pocket. Yeah, the book 
Rebecca, um, very much. I, we should make the point to our listeners as well that it's not just about big tech, which the, lots of people are happy to beat with the stick at the moment. And in in, in the abstract, it's uh, there's a collusion going on between the the new massive tech companies and traditional media companies, what you call content companies, who've been going through a process of what is politely called consolidation over the last uh, decade or more. So that where there used to be six or seven major film studios, there's now only one or two, and Disney is by far are the largest, where you turn around and every second book is published by Penguin Random House, uh, where every second gig is run by Clear Channel and the tickets are sold by Ticketmaster. So it's not just about the Spotify's and the Amazons of this world. Yeah, that's right. And that's actually, that's where this book was born. Um, Corey and I were in Melbourne together in 20, 2018. And we were, we're just like quite full of despair, actually, because we, bet- between us, we've been working in this area for probably close to four decades. Um, and, We've constantly, the, the way that the, the, the discourse is framed is you're, you're told to choose. You choose big tech or big content. Um, but the problem that we were saying, um, is, is the problem is big. Is that, that no matter, no matter who's the one that's got the power, that they're shaking creators down for more and more, more and more value. And so, um, we wanted to show that it's not, it's not, the platforms in and of themselves that is a problem. And, you know, even when you talk about platforms, there's so many different things that you can mean by that. The problem is companies that have too much power that they exert to get more than their fair share. And so that's really what the first half of the book is about, to show that that, that, that is the problem, whether it is big tech or big content. But then the second half of the book, which is, you know, actually, I think despite that first reader that Corey, one of those early editors that Corey mentioned, I think this is ultimately a very hopeful book. Um, we show how you can actually widen those choke points out so that, um, um, no matter who's got the power, we can level the playing field a little bit more, uh, widen out those choke points and, and allow creators to get paid. Stick with us. We'll be right back with Corey and Rebecca after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So this is a politics podcast, Corey, at, uh, at heart. Basically, it is a politics podcast, although I'm also an arts journalist, so I'm interested in it from two different angles. But I mean, among the proposals um, and the suggestions that are made in the book, um, some of them relate to to things that could happen politically in in the United States, because the great majority of these companies are are either American or essentially headquartered in American, even though they're they're multinational, globalized uh, entities themselves. And you you make the point that actually, I don't think you hold out a lot of uh, hope for the federal political system in the United States, but that a huge number of these uh, companies are headquartered in a very small number of states, and that state level uh, regulation could really make a big difference. I think New York and California. Uh, 
would be the two biggest ones, although, of course, Amazon is in Washington state. Yeah, and then there's there's uh, Nashville and Tennessee. You're right. You know, uh, if you have a royalty uh, arrangement with a publisher or a studio or a label, your contract probably gives you the right to audit uh, those royalties. And um, it is often the case for... Uh, Reasons that I won't speculate on that when you audit um, that you'll find some accounting errors. In fact, we we cite uh, one piece of research from a firm that has done tens of thousands of these over decades uh, for record label contracts who discovered that in each one where there was an accounting discrepancy, it, it except for one. It benefited the label and not the artist. Again, we're not sure what what explains that. We assume it's some kind of horrible localized probability storm. But if you were to... We're very familiar with a similar situation with the banks overcharging customers in Ireland, which are banks also being a kind of monopoly in their own right. All, all the mistakes seem to go one way, you know? You have to feel sorry for them because, you know, <laughs> what, a, what a pernicious environment to be in where the dice always roll uh, uh, snake eyes. I mean... I, I feel I feel bad for them. Anyway, um, the, it, when you do find that money that's been stolen from you, uh, and you ask for it back, they'll often say, "Well, no, you're you're mistaken, and um, you're going to have to sue us." Which, of course, you can't afford to do. But you know, we're good-natured slobs, so we're going to cut you a discount check for you know half or three quarters or whatever of, of the money you think we owe you. But it comes with conditions. Uh, first among them is that uh, non-disclosure. Oh, and also, you know, generally they won't allow anyone to audit their books who's already audited their books. That's uh, like the the um, murderer sitting in in his home and the forensics team shows up and he says, gentlemen, you're allowed to dig up any corner of my garden you'd like, except for that one down on the bottom left. I'm very sentimental about that corner and under no circumstances are you allowed to dig there. So um, when you find money that's been stolen from you, you can't tell other people who've had their money stolen where to go look. Uh, and you know, we have one source that we cite in the book who had a six figure figure discrepancy in their, in their, uh, favor. Um, you could imagine four short bills being passed, uh, in four States that said, as a matter of public policy, we will not enforce non-disclosure where it relates to material omissions or misstatements in royalty statements that result to the detriment of people who are owed royalties. Uh, that would at the stroke of a pen or, or four pens, uh, put more money into the pockets of more artists than all of the copyright term extensions of the last 40 years combined. Uh, the difference being that if artists went out and fought for that, that they wouldn't be fighting alongside the labels, the studios, uh, and so on. They, they would be fighting against them because we know that historically they've been opposed to things that are actually in favor of artists' rights. They're, they're often in favor of things that give more power to corporations, uh, which they will, which they will claim uh, will also help artists, but because they have these choke points, they get to take it off them. I do want to say that apropos federal law, in the United States and, and in Europe, there are remarkable regulators. Uh, the politicians have not done a great job of passing a lot of, of bills, but here in the European Union and in the United States, in um, uh, in Washington, D.C., you have trust busters uh, Marguerite Vestager in Europe and Terry Breton. And then in, in America, the head of the FTC, you have um, Lena Kahn and then Robert Cantor at the D Department of Justice or Jonathan Cantor, rather, at the Department of Justice and Tim Wu in the White House, who are really just just going at it, uh, hammer and tongs and also collaborating. So, you know, in the United Kingdom, uh, in, in just a classic uh, omni shambles, they uh, apportioned the money for the largest technical 
antitrust unit in the world. There are 80 full-time engineers working for the Competition and Markets Authority's Digital Markets Unit. But the um, the enforcement powers for this sub-agency were left for secondary legislation that was never passed. So they, they have 80 engineers producing incredible reports that they're not allowed to act on. But in the European Union, they have tons of power and no headcount. And so in the European Union, they're using these reports that are being produced by their British counterparts uh, in order as the evidentiary basis for really sweeping enforcement actions. So it's, it's, it's a team effort. And, you know, uh, I'll take my wins where I can get them, even if we can't get the bills through Congress. And we still might get some good bills through Congress. There were six really good tech antitrust bills uh, on the paper this year in, in the U.S. Congress, and it's not too late yet. There's a real push to get these passed before in the lame duck session. But uh, even if we can't, we we have these regulators who are just kicking ass and taking names. Well, that's fascinating, and it's it's, it's very interesting because it's a counterintuitive story of cooperation uh, between post Brexit Britain and the European Union, and, uh, and 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 sharing that. But I do wonder, and forgive my um, suspicion, Re- Rebecca, these are incredibly powerful, well endowed companies. They had they hold huge political sway. Um, I'm I'm in I'm in Ireland here at the moment. You're in Berlin. You're in London right now, Corey. Here in Ireland, uh, these companies, you know, have a lot of political influence because they employ a lot of people. Because they're for many of them, their European headquarters are here. I don't see a huge appetite in uh, the corridors of power in Dublin to uh, to get on board with the kind of proposals you're talking about. Yeah, I think the the, the politics are very very tricky here, and partly that is um, because the the messaging is so murky. And again, this whole creators versus users framing is um, it, it doesn't work for for getting creators paid, and it doesn't work for getting access to knowledge and culture. But it does benefit um, the the big content who who likes to claim that they're on the creator side, and big tech who likes to claim that they're on the user side. Um, what we I think what we really need to be um, we need to be we need to be understanding that um, one of the the biggest challenges that we face here is that because of this um, sort of idea that that market concentration and monopoly and monopsony is not problematic, that these companies have been allowed to grow to such a point that they have you know enormous power that they are using to 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 buy regulators and buy the regulations and stall the regulations that we we would have if we had a purely evidence based system um but that we need to recognize that we do have some power here. And one of my favorite stories in the book, uh, we worked quite closely with the Writers Guild of America while they were having a strike against the big four Hollywood talent agencies. They had realized, despite the, the, it being a golden age of television, that the writer's share was declining and the agencies which, um, had, had accrued an enormous amount of power had structured the market so that they had an interest in deals that furthered their own interests and, and actually hurt the people they were supposed to represent. And um, the, the writers uh, initially felt quite powerless about this. Um, but David Goodman, who was the president who oversaw this, and he did an event with us in Beverly Hills on launch day uh, last month, uh, he he told us that they they then realised that that in fact it was the writers who had the power that they that that the the. the the agencies only had the power that the writers decided to give them. Um, he said his wife noticed this long before he did, but uh, he eventually came round to this view. And so they were able to withdraw their labor in a single week. Seven thousand Hollywood agents fired their their 
uh, sorry, 7,000 Hollywood writers fired their agents and they ground out their strike for 22 months until even the, the worst of the worst one uh, rolled over and um, reformed their practices. Now, we, we, we can't do it. Like it's not one group that can do it when it comes to big tech and, and these enormously powerful corporations. But uh, we as citizenry, um, and I, I wish that we had a word for that that in, includes people who are not necessarily citizens, but we as, as humans, rather than just what Corey calls ambulatory wallets, we have the power within us to demand that things be different. Um, and, and if we work together, we can affect change. And that's really one of the, the core messages of the book, that that's one of the only ways that we're going to do this is by insisting in the halls of power that we will no longer tolerate um, these kinds of shakedowns. Yeah, there's a couple of things that occur to me about that, Corey. One is the fact that, and you write about this in the book, and I think it's true here in Ireland as well, is a lot of the a lot of the individuals who are essentially being exploited here are being ripped off. They're not employees. They have a sole trader relationship with these massive companies, a huge disparity of power and skill between the two. But when they do try to um, to combine together and to find strength in numbers, very often they're um, they're impeded by legislation which sees that as some kind of cartelization or attempt to kind of carve up the market. Uh, Does that require legislative change as well so that some form of collective bargaining or assertion of collective rights can be be established in a a better way than it is right now? You know, I think you're getting at a a kind of um, muddy intersection of politics and of of norms uh, or of law and politics, say. You know, the, the statutes have been applied in lots of ways over the years. And, and you're right that there have been times in uh, which um, uh, the organization of workers has been treated as an antitrust violation as though they were a bunch of small businesses that had banded together to uh, rob the public by fixing the price of a commodity where that commodity is effectively their labor. And, and the reason that that happened and to the extent that it happened and, and succeeded is that um, it did not shock the conscience. When it shocks the conscience, when it's just so obviously wrong, then um, people uh, don't accept it. And so, you know, I think this is um, not really a legislative question. I think the way that the courts have interpreted antitrust has swayed from from one pole to the other over the years. Um, But that uh, what determined that was the ideological question of whether it was legitimate for workers to create countervailing power. I think that um, after uh, 40 years of declining legitimacy for that proposition, we are at an inflection point in which there is far more sympathy for workers coming together. Uh, the, the kind of lazy, reflexive anti-union rhetoric that was, uh, you know, dominating even five or six years ago today feels really hackneyed. It just doesn't doesn't have the the weight that it did before. People are waking up and questioning it. Yeah, I think that's um that's something that's uh that's that's really obvious now. Um, that you know we've been told there's this there's this sort of stage magic sleight of hand trick going on, uh, this misdirection. We're told to look at the lower prices. Um, and, you know, in some cases, it certainly starts that way, even if they often evaporate. And we, we're seeing that now in this inflationary environment that that's being used to hide um, 
inflated corporate profits um, under the guise of inflation. So they're definitely taking on that side. But we've been told to sort of focus on that. Um, and what that's misdirecting us from is that these powerful corporations have got their hands in our pockets on the on the other side as well. And so, you know, even if, you know, when, when these powerful corporations get so much control over their workers, and it's not just creative workers, increasingly, it's all of us who are vulnerable to this, um, that, that, um, that puts downward pressure on our wages so that even if the prices are less, it still has the same end result, that people have less and less capacity to buy the goods and services that they actually need. And I think that that's part of what people are waking up to. They're seeing how much uh, how much inflation is going up, but they're also seeing that their wages are not going up in a, in a similar way at all. But, but another problem, is it not, is that very often the people who try and have tried to resist this um, or push back against it in in recent years maybe have got the wrong end of the stick i mean the book is is very interesting on on the question of of copyright and i've covered these issues here over the last few years I've been involved in various discussions and um the music industry for example uh sees this very much as a battle over asserting asserting its rights in in traditional copyright sense the newspaper industry which is being stripped by you know the advertising giants of of Facebook and Google very often couches this in terms of copyright as well. But you argue in the book that that's a very wrong, mistaken and probably damaging way of thinking what the problem actually is. Look, this is a classic case of trickle-down economics, right? Um, the, the, the big content companies assure artists that if they get more copyright, then it is going to, it's going to affect their bottom line as well. Uh, the analogy that we use in the, in the book is, well, if you're sending your, your kid to school and they're getting shaken down by bullies at the school gate every day for their lunch money, you don't solve the problem by giving them more lunch money. Right. You think about how, how you actually keep that money in your kid's pocket. Um, and that's the case. Even if the bullies were to create a global campaign saying, won't somebody think of the hungry school children? Uh, we would still not be doing that by giving them more lunch money. So more copyright rights can be desirable where they actually secure the rights to the creators. And we see that in the, the EU's digital single market directive. They've uh, given, uh, mandated that member states give artists and, and performers new rights over things like you know, fair and equitable remuneration, rights to reclaim their copyrights in the event that they're no longer being commercially exploited, transparency rights so that they do um, have an entitlement to information over how their works are being used, what revenues are coming in and how their pay is calculated. These are the kinds of copyright reforms that can really make a difference. Um, although, again, they're not, uh, they have, the, the implementation of these is not without uh, the shortcomings because, again, these very powerful corporations are arguing against anything that would make a meaningful difference. But that's definitely where we should be um, concentrating the efforts. Corey, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was just going to talk uh, apropos the news because I know that news bargaining codes are are in the are in the news today, and the underlying assumption is often that um, when when social media sites or online services allow people to talk about the news or summarize the news or reproduce a headline from the news, that that's a, a copyright infringement. I, I think, like as a technical matter, it, it's not a copyright infringement. Um, I, I think that it's fair dealing or fair use, depending on where you are. But I also think that, in a, in a much more important sense, um, it, to to assert that you're not allowed to talk about the news is a huge mistake. Uh, it, it's not the news if you're not allowed to talk about it. That's a secret. Um, and when you look at what's actually happening 
to the ad market, you're right that there's been a lot of displacement of ads. Certainly classified ads have moved from uh, newspapers to the online services. But there's something far more important that's going on with ads uh, than just people shifting how they buy ads. It's that the tech platforms are stealing money from publishers by rigging the ad market. You know, in the United States, in the Texas Attorney General's case against the tech platforms, they've revealed memos that uh, uh, show that the tech platforms, that Google and Facebook, have a secret collusive arrangement that they call Jedi Blue, whereby they rig the auctions for ads that are shown uh, on newspapers and other news sites' uh, uh, web pages. And this allows them to just trouser money that should rightly go to these publishers. In addition, you have acts of, of huge fraud, uh, metrics fraud, like Facebook's uh, uh, notorious pivot to video, where they defrauded every publisher in the world by asserting that there was massive Facebook user interest in video and that they should all retool to produce videos instead of text. They said, you know, the, the age of text is over. We have the metrics to prove it. Turned out it was just a lie. They were lying about it because they wanted to compete with YouTube and they didn't have any videos. And they thought, well, if we lie to web pu- to publishers, they will fire their print newsrooms, their text newsrooms, hire video editors, retool, go into debt, make all this content. And, you know, then the users will follow. If there's lots of video on Facebook, then Facebook users, by God, will start liking video. That never happened. And instead, what happened is news publishers around the world went bust as a result. I think that if news publishers stopped asserting that Facebook and Google were stealing their content, which is a a controversial proposition, to say the least, and instead leaned into the completely uncontroversial proposition that Facebook and Google are stealing their money, that we would have a much more direct path to getting fair remuneration for news entities. I, I completely agree. And I've seen some of this, the cold face on this in my in my day job for, for the newspaper as well. But but Rebecca, can I ask you, if, if you would say for a moment that you're actually speaking to my evil twin and my evil twin says this, says, I've got the world's music in my uh, in my pocket for $9.99 a month. I've got the world's library on my uh, on my laptop for for more or less the same amount of money. I don't give a damn about whether artists get paid well or not. I just know that I have a better suite of services in those kind of culture areas uh, than I had previously. And anyway, the arts were always incredibly unfair. There were always a tiny number of big winners and a large amount of big losers. What's the difference? So I think there's actually very few people who feel that way, Hugh. Um, and that's one of the reasons why these arguments in favour of more copyright are so powerful, because so many of us do um, really feel that that, that the, the artists and, and creators that make so many of the beautiful things that make life worth living should be rewarded for that work. Um, but but back to, to the question of, okay, this is very convenient. We should, we should, we should have streaming, right? And the answer is, yes, we, sh- we should make it easy for people to, to have legitimate widespread access to music, but we can definitely improve the way that it works. Um, so this is, these are some ways in which um, copyright really works against creators. Um, so in, in being sort of very often fully alienable, so the rights can be taken for the entire term of copyright, uh, whether in, in circumstances where there might not be any um, um, obligation to pay fairly for that, where um, record companies make up these outrageous um, recruitment debts and have practices that make it virtually impossible to pay that off, so people can sell millions of dollars worth of records and never actually see a cent beyond their advance. Um, we also we also see that there's potential to fix a lot of the leakage. A lot of that money that does come in for music streaming um, is 
lost into black holes because um, each individual country's got their own collecting societies, which e- they've each got their own databases that they they put together. Um, they very often we found um, in our research for the book that they can't even identify Beyonce to get her her money, and this all works out very well because the, the for the, the 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 biggest record labels and so on because it tends to be that this this money that's unallocated gets distributed according to your market share or it goes into a black box and doesn't have to be shared with artists at all. Um, and the record labels do just fine out of this, uh, but artists actually don't. And so this is a place where, again, if we're going to be talking about, or well, how does copyright help, we could be reforming the actual practices around getting the money into creators, getting um, much more streamlined, um, um, uh, tech, using using the technologies that are available now to to reduce, massively reduce the cost of doing that. Um, and we... we um, um, I, I think we should also be thinking very seriously about the other ways in which copyright locks locks customers in. Um, so things like digital rights management is another thing that was supposed to be a, a benefit uh, for copyright holders, but in fact it's become a, a, a benefit for companies like Amazon. Amazon uh, locks all of its uh, audiobooks in in digital locks that are uh, illegal to take it away and illegal for someone to help you to strip away. And what that means is that Audible customers uh, who are um, subscribing in, into that ecosystem either have to sort of give up their library or maintain separate libraries or stay with Audible. Um, and if if we could have, and because um, certainly what I've seen in my experience in, in our research, um, in the research around cultural economics, there are very few people like your supposed evil twin. People might well want to make different choices about how um, how they access their books. And certainly after reading the, the chapter on Audible in our book, um, which is the only part of our book that we made that a standalone um, Audible exclusive, just that chapter to show just how terrible um, the, the company practices are. But I think if more people knew about that, uh, then they would want to make different choices. And, you know, if there was something like an author's co-op where you could buy directly from the authors um, and a greater share of them of the money would go to that rather than the up to 90% that Audible sometimes takes um, on books that are fully financed by other people, um, they would love to be able to move their libraries over. And that's not something where you've got digital um, rights management lock-in. Uh, so w- what we really focus on are practical, shovel-ready solutions that would actually make a meaningful difference to the the money that ends up in creators' pockets. Rebecca's mention of the chapter on Audible, I, I found it amusing that it it was uh, it was the strongest chapter against Amazon, and that was the chapter on Audible, which is obviously obviously deliberate and 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 well done on that. Curry, it does raise the question of very often a lot of these questions about the you know the overweening power of new technology companies and all the rest of it uh, start veering into a whole set of other debates around speech uh, and diversity of speech and what should be allowed and what shouldn't. Do you think that? tends to muddy the waters when it comes to this issue, or is it inextricably linked with it, maybe, in some way? Well, I think that that um, there is a, a good and legitimate question about uh, speech and the big platforms. Uh, Tom Eastman, a software developer from New Zealand, memorably says, I'm old enough to remember when the web was more than five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. And, and I think that crystallizes something uh, extremely poignant about where we've got to. Uh, I, I think that when people argue about what kind of speech should and shouldn't be permissible on the big platforms, and more importantly, what duties the big platform should have to uh, uh, act in relation to bad speech or to ensure 
that good speech isn't taken down by uh, filters gone haywire or moderators making bad calls, that um, they're, they're really arguing about how the benevolent dictator can be made more benevolent, right? That that we've ceded the, the control over our uh, speech forums to these large firms. Um, and now we're just arguing about how to make sure that these large firms uh, behave themselves better. And I think that once you accept the premise that we are going to be reduced to just a, a handful of large platforms and that everything else, everything that's not a large platform is inevitably going to be described as a shadowy corner of the Internet. I mean, this is the this is a very funny thing right now that anytime someone's not using Facebook, Twitter, Reddit or, or a handful of other services, we say, oh, well, over there in the shadowy corners of the Internet, something is incubating um, that that we preclude the possibility that people will be able to have technological self-determination, that rather than hoping that Elon Musk will keep harassers from filling up your timeline, um, you might, in fact, just have a service that is your own, that federates with other services, that isn't uh, all on its own, that isn't just like you and six friends, but is rather part of that global conversation that especially people in the creative sector need to be in, but also, you know, politicians and lots of other people need to be in. Um, so that when you post messages, people who are on their own servers can see them and follow them, uh, but that they can have their own content moderation policies and uh, block servers that allow uh, people to say things that are not the sort of things they want to say. When, when we foreclose on that possibility, that possibility of, of people running their own speech forums and connecting them in ways that they want, then you're, you're left with this increasingly strained kind of constitutional monarchy where we say, all right, uh, you know, Zuck, Musk, you can be the, you know, permanent god emperors of the internet, but we're going to surround you with an aristocracy and you will suffer yourselves to be draped in golden chains and they will stop you from overreaching your power. And so as between these powerful regulators and you, the, 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 the god king, um, you, will, uh, you will produce something that the rest of us will get to use, as opposed to just letting us make our own stuff, letting us have our, our own places. I think, that, I think that's very well put. Just a, just a last question to you, Rebecca, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, and I, I think it's a, we've touched on it previously, and it's a theme I think that runs underneath all of the book, which is even for people who aren't necessarily or don't find themselves too concerned about the fact that people in the creative industries and people who make original work um, are not getting their, their fair due and far from it. Um, Amazon started as a little online way of selling hard copy books and it had ended up eating the whole of retail. A lot of these companies started kind of in cultural areas and have expanded beyond that to control large swathes of the modern economy. We, in in a post-industrial knowledge economy-based first world society, the kind of models which have been applied to music and film and books, they're probably coming for everybody at some stage, aren't they, if uh, if we don't stop them? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, we wrote about this in the context of the creative industries because that's, that's what we know best. That's what we're passionately obsessed about. But we, we, 
we know that this is this um, choke pointification is happening in increasing number of industries. We got an email a couple of days ago from somebody who works in um, the uh, the global ornamental plant business, and they emailed us to say thank you so much for writing this book. It's exactly the same thing that's happening in ornamental plants. Um, and we 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 saw like a lot of us, you know, we we hear a lot of. Um, a lot of talk about whether robots are going to take our um, blue collar jobs, but there's a lot of things that robots are not very good at um, and that, that humans could do quite easily and quite cheaply. Uh, but we did see with COVID that uh, a lot of white collar jobs can be done just as easily from home as in offices, which uh, opens up the possibility of, you know, a, a decade or two of socialization and education, having those jobs as well outsourced to the, the, the lowest paying bidder, including in in the third world. Uh, and so if if everybody that's listening to this, uh, whether no matter what kind of job you've, you've got, wants to be able to, to, to have dignified work and to be paid fairly for that, we need to be concerned about this growing corporate power because they are all playing by the same playbook where they try to, to, to lock everybody in in order to, um, to, to shake them down. The book is called Choke Point Capitalism. Uh, it's published this week by Scribe, Rebecca Giblin and Cory Doctorow. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. That's it from me for today. Thanks to our producers, Suzanne Brennan and Declan Conlon. We're going to be back with you again very soon. But until then, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.